hello good morning Rafaela. how are you hi i'm very well thank you thank you for having me good well no thank you for coming on so you are on the stage place talking about your new play sap which is really exciting. So I saw it in Edinburgh when it was at the roundabout. And so I know all about it. But for people that are listening right now that haven't seen it and they're really intrigued, what is it about? What is what is SAP? Oh, you would think I would be better at answering this question by now, but uh, I'm, I'm not. It is very, very loosely based on a Greek myth of... Daphne and Apollo boil down to its very bare bones. Apollo is a god who pursues this nymph Daphne. She rejects him, he chases her, and then she turns into a tree as her salvation, question mark, which is sort of one of the things that I've explored in the book. The play itself is a, a contemporary story of a woman in her 30s who is bisexual, who doesn't really use that word, who maybe isn't comfortable with using that word, and attracts the attention of, as in the myth, attracts the attention of someone more powerful than her. She gets into a relationship with a woman who she absolutely loves and um, allows her girlfriend to think that she is not bisexual, that she is gay, and that lie or that omission comes back to bite her in increasingly dark and horrible ways. God, it sounds a bit of a roller coaster. Yeah, I've been describing it to people as, what if you thought you were in a rom-com and it turned out you were in a horror movie? Yeah, that's good. I like that. It is. It is. I like <laughs> watching it. It's very that. It's kind of like rom-com, horror, thriller. It is. It is. It's very unnerving, isn't it, at points? I, I really love genre stuff, which we don't always get a chance to see or write a lot of genre in theatre. And I don't think I knew I'd written a thriller until it was finished. I mean, very often you don't know what you've written until you finish writing it. But yes, there is a, a moment without giving anything away that where it very definitely kind of shifts, I think, from, from one genre to another. And I love work that has that fluidity of tone to it. So that's what I was, I think, probably subconsciously trying to do as well. It's always wonderful to have to go, oh, I thought this was one thing. And then this unexpected colour has just bloomed in it. I love it. I love it. So this is Sap that was at the Ed Fringe, which is now mm. going to the Soho Theatre between the 3rd and the 22nd of April. What is that like? And kind of like, what have you had to do from like Ed Fringe ending, that all being a high because it was such a successful run? What's happened in between then and now? Kind of like, what's your kind of like adaptation process been? Has there been one? I mean, on my end, there's been very little, really, which has been a nice thing and a strange thing as well. We literally just started rehearsal again on Wednesday for uh, a couple of days ago for the new run. So as you said, it's going to Soho, but it's also touring to quite a few different venues. And the biggest thing that the production is having to do is shift from in the round, the roundabout space in Edinburgh is fully in the round. And none of the venues that we're going to are in the round. They're all either going to be traverse or end on. So the work in the rehearsal room that's going on at the moment and they're all doing amazing stuff is taking the show that was in Edinburgh and going what really works, what's the core of a scene, what do we want to preserve from the scene while reconfiguring it to a new space and therefore a new relationship to to the audience. Um, A lot of the players monologue so that relationship between speaker and audience is really key to the whole thing. 
the team, the cast and Jess, the director, kind of the creative team have all been doing that. I have not really had to do anything at all, which has been very, very strange. But also that's partly because the show was originally going to be on in 2020 and wasn't for obvious reasons. And with that extra time, we did a lot of development on it in that extra time. So I kind of feel like I've had my time. I um, always called myself the, um, rather than the writer, I called myself the text department because um, I found that a bit easier to go with. So I've done my I've done my work as the text department and now I'm in and out of rehearsals and occasionally kind of going, can we cut that little line? I don't think that's working. But really, I'm I'm done. I'm just looking forward to seeing it. Nice. nice. So you can sit back. Do you sit back and relax or do you, are you still anxious a little bit? I mean, it's both because everyone who's working on it is so wonderful and talented. It's honestly such a pleasure to watch them work, especially because my background is actually as a director. This is my first play. So most of what I've done so far has been as a director and a dramaturg. As a director, you don't get to watch other directors working very much. So there is something really lovely about being able to just be in the room and kind of absorb everyone else's work. And obviously also at the same time, I'm going, right, well, this time everyone's going to find out I'm a terrible fraud uh, and I'm going to get busted this time around. So there is something very particularly vulnerable, I think, about opening show as a writer as opposed to a director. For sure. That sounds so exciting. And I can't wait to see what it's like different because in the round is one thing as well. But like, I think it's a really exciting offer, I think, when you're when your production shifts like that kind of like especially if you've seen it before or haven't seen it before it's a new experience for the audience and I can't wait I can't wait to see it as well I want to take you far before that though I want to take you like to the 2020 times kind of like when you were first kind of like drafting this kind of like the very first kind of like root of the idea what was it that kind of like drew you to the Daphne myth as you said and kind of like what what made you think I want to write this play I've been really trying to remember because I started writing the play a long time ago, like long before 2020. And I think like a lot of people who, you know, started off in a different role in theatre, I kind of convinced myself that I couldn't write or that I couldn't write dramatically, which probably came from being a director of new writing and being a dramaturg and seeing how hard it is to write a play. And I, I shied away from it. So I was writing bits and pieces in secret for a very long time before I, I showed any of it to anyone. But I think it came from, I have always loved Greek mythology and kind of my my mum gave me a book of Greek myths when I was really little. So I think I'd finished all the fairy tales. Um, and there's something about those stories. They have a sense of scale to them, but they're also, you know, I always try to remember that they were part of a religion at one point. So fundamentally, they're stories about trying to understand the world and trying to make sense of very fundamental things about the world. I went to see Marina Warner do a talk once and she said this incredible thing. Myth is our psychic geography, um, that kind of they're the, the landscape of those not just Greek myths, but all myths and law is kind of something that almost comes pre-packaged into our brains. And I, I don't love the Daphne and Apollo myth. Like a lot of Greek myths, it is about sexual assault. And I think maybe it was because it was so horrible, I kind of kept coming back to it. And I think I couldn't get over the fact that at the end of the myth, her salvation is that she's turned into a tree. And I was like, well, that sucks because, okay, yeah, so he doesn't get her, but also then she has to be a tree 
And then also the tree that she turns into, the laurel tree, he, Apollo adopts that as his symbol. So he still kind of claims her at, at the end of it. And I always knew it was going to be a queer story. I think it didn't start as a bisexual story. But I think I felt like, like a lot of new writers do, or a lot of first-time writers, I needed a framework to build on. And the myth became a scaffolding for the play. And like any good scaffolding, the aim ultimately was to take it away at the end and let the edifice of the play stand by itself. So that was always something that I really wanted was you should not have to know this myth in order to appreciate the play because otherwise you, you're sort of weirdly self-selecting your audience and you're narrowing who your audience is. So come and see it. And I know people who have come and seen it and do, like have no knowledge of this myth and don't even know that it was based on a myth and it's still, I hope, stands on its own two feet but yeah I felt like I needed something to give me a shape even if it's as basic a shape of pursuit and transformation which are kind of the big things that I took from uh that original Greek myth I always find the kind of process of adapting ideas and kind of narratives really interesting because I always kind of like when I'm watching something I'm always thinking of kind of like oh okay so this is their lens that's what they're using to try and boost their kind of like story kind of like oh so they left that out why did they leave that out what would happen if that was included so it's kind of kind of like decoding kind of narratives and I love that idea of a psychic geography I think that's so interesting I think that's really clever I really love that so from that point up until now kind of like what are the bits that you decided to kind of keep or rework or like decode and kind of like not necessarily kind of like the forensic side of it but like do you have any kind of like tips or kind of ways of working that you thought was really beneficial which kind of made you think oh yeah okay so this has propelled me to go and tell my story this way and so kind of like once I can take all that foundation away it's not going to fall apart it's a really rigid play. Yeah I think for me it was a very non-linear process of kind of coming away from the myth and going back to it and coming away from it and going back to it. Um, I remember a very definite point in the writing process when I thought I was kind of done with the myth. I sort of thought, okay, I've got the, I've laid the foundation stone. I've got everything out of it that I need. And then was really struggling to kind of crack some of the structure. And I went back to the myth and without giving anything away, the answer was there kind of in, in the original. And it was this brilliant moment of going, why am I overthinking that? It's right there. The answer is right there. So that's, I guess, my kind of advice is, like I said, I think this scaffolding model works really well for me. Of I'm using this skeleton to build my own thing and ultimately I'm going to take it away. But don't forget that the skeleton is there to help you specifically with Greek myths there's been a kind of big resurgence in kind of retellings of them especially kind of from female writers and from kind of feminist perspectives like especially in kind of the novel world which is interesting because I partly wonder if you know there is something about sort of selling something on a kind of put it in the most like crude crude, reductive way possible, selling something on an existing IP. Like there's a kind of thing of, oh, you already know this story, so you're going to get to enjoy a, a reinterpretation of it. But as I said, I, I never wanted to presume that anyone would know this story. So I think that's the other side of it, is that the myth is for me, and I hope the play is for other people. The myth gave me permission to be not literal, 
about the way you know there are these more mystic elements in the play these more supernatural elements in it and the myth gave me permission to explore something that I hope feels very real and truthful and kind of a real dynamic that has happened to me has happened to other people that audiences might recognize and explore that in this more heightened way in this more metaphorical way for sure yeah I completely agree I think also the kind of queering a narrative is a natural kind of process of adaptation as well and kind of like lending a kind of an anti-normative lens on something that is normative is a really good way of kind of like refreshing a story as well because when I saw it in Edinburgh it was very fresh it felt very current it felt very contemporary and I think it's really important to see female narratives female bisexual narratives female queer narratives in theatre at the moment um what what's your take on that kind of like how important was it to kind of use that as a process to tell a different version of this story kind of like what was the queering process like well I, I'm so I'm in my 30s and I the media that I grew up on had a fraction of the explicit queer representation that media has now I'm very jealous um and but what that meant was I am of a generation where all the queer people in my generation are excellent readers of subtext right this is kind of so many fandoms were built around this so much kind of fan culture and interpretation has been built around like finding the queer subtext finding the gaps where you can insert your your queerness into it and kind of make your own reflection appear to you in something and in the myth Daphne is a sort of sworn virgin so it's not just that she doesn't want to just that she doesn't want to polish she doesn't want any man which has always instinctively been so queer coded to me specifically like female queer coded when any woman in mythology or literature who's sort of going like no I don't want anything to do with any men ever you know there's this delicious kind of like hidden implication to that which I think sometimes the male writers in particular haven't even realised is there of kind of, oh, well, then she may be interested in someone else if she's not interested in men. So in a way, the queering of this myth is very organic to me because it's just something that I'd always assumed about characters like Daphne, that there was a, a bisexuality or a lesbianness to these characters. So I think that's where that grew out of. It helped me a lot that it felt organic in that way because... I wanted to write about bisexuality because my own understanding of my bisexuality had become much more nuanced in recent years. And it's there's perennial online discourse about bisexuality. And a lot of it to me feels like it's repeating the kind of 101 points over and over again, which is very frustrating in terms of having to go, you know, go, no, bisexual people are not inherently untrustworthy, are not inherently cheaters or not inherent you know all of the they're not undecisive all of the all of these all of the stereotypes that come up when I think that there is a world that is an imaginative world that is waiting beyond that to talk about I see bisexuality as something that allows my understanding of gender and sexuality to have so many different kind of colours in it and so many different shades in it and there are a lot of people in the world who maybe don't call themselves bisexual but know that they are not just attracted to one gender so there is something about bisexuality that says to me actually the world is a much queerer place than we give it credit for and that to me I think is a real you know heart or end point of what queer liberation is and, and all of that 
yeah, I was lucky, I think, in that the myth came together in my brain with that line of thinking and it very organically grew into telling a story that would allow me to think about all of those different things. I love that. I love it. What did you say? The world is a lot more queer than we give it credit for? The world is a much queerer place than we give it credit for. And, you know, it's all trial and error. We're all trying to kind of work stuff out as we go along. But sometimes I see stuff that comes from within the queer community slash queer communities, plural, that's sort of demanding that we kind of, that we label ourselves or box ourselves. And I think those labels are incredibly powerful. But I also think that sometimes for someone who is questioning their sexuality, that could be off-putting. I celebrate every time someone comes out as bisexual or pansexual or kind of anything under the the bi umbrella because it, it has become sort of acceptable to challenge that in a way that doesn't so much feel like it's happening with other sexualities. Yeah, I I, I think that there is a lot of queerness in people that maybe it's easier not to express, but it is there. And and I hope that that's what comes out in the play is, you know, this is going to come out of you one way or another. Absolutely. It's there in the play for sure. And I can't, I can't wait to see it, get that all over again. And hopefully in a new way, because every time you go and see something, you get something different as well. So I can't wait to see it a second time for sure. People, if they're going to see it, if they've saw it in Edinburgh and they're seeing it again, or if they're seeing it for the first time on this tour at Soho or the other venues, what are people going to get? Kind of like, what's it, what's the atmosphere like? What do you want people to leave with after seeing SAP? I think it is a play that's, no pun intended, but kind of inescapable, that grows on you in the sense that I think the very immediate experience you're going to get is of a story that really drives, that is entertaining that has momentum that has kind of gasps and shocks and tears and and laughs in it like I think it's a a funny play as well and I hope that then as you kind of walk away from the theatre your mind will kind of start drifting down through the levels of the play and encourage you to think a little more about kind of maybe some assumptions that you might have made about yourself or about other people and you might be able to kind of unwind those and go actually is that is that true? The extreme version is that I two people, maybe three, I think, I don't know, I think two people have actually come out as bisexual after seeing the play. And that's incredible. Like, that's what a privilege to kind of be part of someone's coming out in that way. That really made me tear up when, when they taught me that. Yeah, it's what theatre can do, what stories can do. I love it. So this is SAP that is at the Soho Theatre in London, 3rd to the 22nd of April. Where else is it going on the tour? When, when, Where else can people see it? Well, I know I'm not going to remember all of them off the top of my head, but um, before Soho was kicking off um, at the North Wall Arts Centre in Oxford, um, we are going to Birmingham Rep, we are going to the Mercury Theatre, Colchester, going to Bury St Edmunds, Exeter Phoenix, we are the Marlowe Theatre in Canada, I think that's the last stop. We're going to Theatre by the Lake in Keswick. I feel like there's there's one I'm forgetting or maybe a couple I'm forgetting, but that's, you know, so it's a really lovely tour. Yeah. All over the shop. All over the shop. That's so exciting. Well, I hope I hope you you're able to kind of follow them around the country as well at some points. I hope they have a good time around the country as well. Sounds like such a good, such an exciting play to tour with. So good. I've got one more question left for you, Rafaela, and it's what we ask all our guests on the stage place. And it comes from the title. It's essentially where do you feel most stagey? So either as a writer or a director or as a dramaturg, like when you're working. 
where do you feel most kind of like immersed in the kind of the theatrical vibe? It could be anywhere. It could be a cafe. It could be a tech box. It could be the foyer on press night. Where do you feel most stagey? So I think like a lot of people, I think I have my best ideas about theatre when I'm watching theatre. And sometimes that's out of kind of sheer like theatrical joy at what I'm seeing. Sometimes it's because I'm feeling grumpy about what I'm seeing and I'm kind of going, oh no, but you could do this instead. And that's as a director and a dramaturg and a writer, because I think ultimately they're all kind of the same thing. You know, all of those roles want the same thing. So I specifically feel the most stagey when I am in the I'm going to say middle back row in the cheap seats of a big auditorium and I can sink into the anonymity of that experience and watch something that is bigger than myself from far away and the distance and the perspective and the darkness all kind of come together which to let me talk to the play in my own head in in a way that then often directly feeds back into my own work I love that as well I also when I'm seeing stuff I always try and sit at the back as well not only because it's the only seats that I can afford (laughs) it's also like half the show is watching the audience as well I think kind of like it's always really interesting to see what moments hit what people especially as a dramaturg for example kind of like where are the moments structurally are people most engaged where when are they kind of like lapsing it's really interesting to kind of like watch a whole like a thousand if you're thinking that the olivier like watch a thousand people react to a moment that's really interesting as well isn't it and i have loved watching the audiences on sap there's you know there's a couple of moments that generally get a reaction every time but it's always a slightly different reaction within the audience and there's been some absolutely kind of joyful ones that I will remember for a long time learn so much by watching the audience amazing well you'll get so much more on this tour you'll get so many more moments I'm so excited for you can't wait to see it and I hope everyone else buys a ticket right now after listening to this (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me, Rafaela. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure.